When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Lease. Today we're diving in to a new episode of Shit Out of Luck, covering O.J. Simpson. So join us as we talk how O.J. was finally run out of luck. Or, like we like to say, just shit out of luck. October 3rd, 1995, at 10 a.m., in a nondescript L.A. courtroom, the Super Bowl of murder trials was finally at the end after 133 days. Some estimate that 91% of all people watching television at that moment were tuned in, breathlessly as the judge and jury finally made their verdict. Around the world, everyone was asking, do you think O.J. did it? Orenthal the Juice James Simpson, better known as O.J., was born on July 9, 1947, in San Francisco, California, and went on to become a legendary football player. In high school, he played tackle and fullback positions. A year a- after a year at San Francisco City College, building his academic r- record, he transferred to the University of Southern California where he quickly found fame as the team's star player. Perhaps the greatest running back of all time, and was the winner of the 1968 Heisman Trophy. John McKay, who was Simpson's coach at USC, described him by saying, Simpson was not only the greatest player I ever had, he was the greatest player anyone ever had. Simpson then moved on to the NFL, where he spent most of his career playing for the Buffalo Bills. In his time on the field, he broke even more national records, including most rushing yards in one season, most rushing yards in a single game, and most touchdowns in a season. Simpson spent his last years playing pro football with the San Francisco 49ers, 
around that time, his first marriage, and in many ways his life, had begun to fall apart. At 30 years old, his knees were beginning to fail, signaling the end of his illustrious career. In 1978, the same year he joined the 49ers, he and his wife separated. And a year later, the same year he retired from football, his child drowned in the pool at his home. However, while he was still married to his first wife, he met a beautiful 17-year-old waitress named Nicole Brown. Though, depending on who you asked, she may have been barely 18 at the time. Nicole had just graduated from Dana Hills High School in Orange County, located in an upper-middle-class beachfront community, where she had ruled as homecoming princess. Her home economics teacher would later describe her saying, Everybody was in awe of her. We get a lot of beautiful students, but she was the ultimate beauty. The girls liked and admired her. The guys were in love with her. After high school, she moved to L.A. to try modeling and had been working in a restaurant in Beverly Hills when she met O.J. It was said their attraction to each other was immediate and intense. Her sister said at their beginnings, she just loved O.J. She didn't care if he was a football player or a dirt digger. By the time Nicole was 19, they were living together most of the time. She was traveling back and forth from L.A. to San Francisco to support him in his final football season. She would later claim that even in the early stages of her relationship, supporting the demands of his career, meant that she could not finish college or hold down steady jobs. They lived together six years before marrying on February 2nd, 1987, or excuse me, 1985. Seven months later, their first child was born. Later that year, O.J. was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. During his acceptance speech, he gave an emotional thanks to, quote, my wife Nicole, who came into my life at what is probably the most difficult time for an athlete, at the end of my career. After retiring, Simpson worked as a sports commentator, actor, and spokesperson. Reportedly, he was earning about $1 million a year, spending several months on a year work while Nicole stayed home to care for their children. However, this fairy tale was more in line with those told by the Brothers Grimm. Dark, twisted, and frightening. OJ was known to have jealousy and control issues. In the final years of the marriage, her friends and family began noticing bruises on her arms and neck. In 1989, Nicole called the police in the wake of a New Year's Eve party gone awry. And when they arrived at the scene, she emerged from a hiding place in the bushes, screaming, quote, he's going to kill me, he's going to kill me. Her lip had been cut, her eye was black and swollen shut. Her cheek was bruised, and there was a handprint on her, on her neck. A few months later, O.J. pleaded no contest to spousal bat battery and was fined for $700 for the incident. Around that time, O.J. spoke to ESPN in an interview, saying, We had a fight. We were both guilty. No one was hurt. It was no big deal, and we got on with our life. At the time, the couple released a statement claiming their marriage was stronger than ever. After enduring their rocky marriage for several more years, Nicole filed for divorce in 1992. She moved into a townhouse in Brentwood, one of L.A.'s most expensive neighborhoods, where O.J.'s mansion was also located. Even after the divorce, the couple had a tumultuous relationship. One of Nicole's friends said of the dynamic, quote, It was common knowledge that he would follow her, he would show up at places, 
she would have to calm him down. In October 1994, the LAPD reported that Nicole had called 911 after OJ kicked in the back door of her house, enraged over an old photo of a past boyfriend he saw in a photo album. Even so, the couple tried off and on to make their relationship work again. One of OJ's neighbors spoke of one of her last encounters with Nicole before her death, saying, quote, I ran into her six weeks ago at San Vicente Foods. She told me, did you hear? OJ and I are getting back together. She was very happy, unquote. However, Nicole finally ended things with him, once and for all, about a week prior to her tragic murder. On Sunday... June 12, 1994, the night of the murder, Nicole had taken her two children, parents, and two of her sisters to Mezzaluna, her favorite trendy restaurant in her neighborhood. Ironically, the dinner was to celebrate her freedom. Her sister told the New York Times that after many attempts to reconcile after their divorce, Nicole had finally broken off. She was so happy. She had broken up with OJ a week and a half before. She was going to start her life over. Who's going to be without o- without OJ and with her children? Later that night, Ronald Goldman, a 25-year-old aspiring model with a magnetic personality, went over to Nicole's place, reportedly to return a pair of sunglasses. She left at the restaurant where he worked as a server. Ronald and Nicole had recently become friends, and over the past month and a half, had been seen working out, going to clubs, and getting coffee and food together. The most accepted theory of what transpired that night is that an unknown single male came through the back entrance of Nicole's condo to carry out his attack, though what transpired between 10 p.m. and just after midnight when their bodies were found is still a mystery. The attacker came for Nicole in a small, mostly enclosed area by her front gate. Her stab wounds were so profound, her neck had been nearly been severed from her body, Ron's body was also mutilated in a struggle. Ultimately stabbed about 30 times, Nicole and OJ's children, Sidney and Justin, who were 9 and 6, were reportedly both in the house, sleeping at the time of the murder. Neighbors became alarmed at Nicole's dog howling incessantly, and when they got to the house, they found the fluffy Akita covered in blood. Then they discovered the bodies. Meanwhile... O.J. was on a plane to Chicago for a business trip to attend a convention for the Hertz Rental Car Company, where he was working as a spokesperson at the time. He boarded American Airlines Flight 668 at 11.45 p.m. and departed LAX. However, the timing of his departure was still suspect. Alan Park, an employee of the Town & Country Limo Company, had been sent to take O.J. to the airport, arriving as scheduled and his estate at 10.25 p.m. However, Simpson did not come out. And when Park rang the doorbell multiple times, there was no answer. Park returned to wait in the car. And at 10.56, a shadowy figure walked up the driveway and into the house. The person Park saw was black, very tall, and about 200 pounds, so he assumed it was O.J. A few minutes later, O.J. came out of the house with a small black bag told Park he had overslept. Park noted that O.J. would not let him touch the bag, which prosecutors later theorized held the murder weapon. The bag was never seen again, and one of the airport porters testified 
He saw OJ near a trash can that night. Early Monday morning, June 13th, 1994, the police called Simpson to inform him that his ex-wife had been murdered. Reportedly, Simpson did not even ask how, when, or by whom. Though in his grief, he allegedly smashed a glass after hearing the news, causing a bad cut on his left hand. Simpson took the next flight back to L.A., and upon arrival, the police interviewed him for about an half an hour. They asked him several questions about the cut on his hand, and at first Simpson claimed to not know how he had gotten it. Investigators found the injury to be highly suspicious, and he was quickly determined to be one of the prime suspects in the case. Within several days, the police had found enough evidence to obtain O.J.'s arrest warrant. Officials worked out a deal with his attorney that required O.J. to turn himself in to police headquarters by 10 a.m. on June 17, 1994. When he did not surrender himself, police went to Brentwood to pick him up. At about 1 p.m., four officers arrived at his house. And after fruitlessly knocking on his door, realized O.J. had invaded them again. In his place, O.J. left a concerning letter, which sounded like a suicide letter. It was later read by his friend and attorney, Robert Kardashian. Quote, I think of my life and feel I've done most of the right things, so why do I end up like this? I can't go on. Quote, Before his escape, O.J. had packed his passport, a disguise, a loaded gun, and $8,750 in cash. Initially, he hid in the back of the now infamous white Bronco, belonging to his friend A.C. Cowlings. But by 6.20, a driver in Orange County spotted and notified the police. Officers were told O.J. was holding a gun to his own head. So in the chase that ensued, they pursued him at relatively low speeds for over an hour. As a dozen police cars and news helicopters flew overhead, that journey became one of the most infamous moments in TV history with an estimated 95 million viewers tuned in to watch his failed escape. Ultimately, the chase led right back to O.J.'s mansion. He eventually surrendered voluntarily and was finally arrested in his own driveway. At his, o at his trial, O.J. pleaded absolutely not guilty, but his alibi was relatively weak. He claimed at the time of the murder he had been hitting golf balls in his backyard. While he had a house guest named Cato staying with him at the time, he could not account for O.J.'s whereabouts. After 9.36 p.m. when they had got home from a quick run to get Big Macs and french fries, he said the next time he noticed a signal of mo movement in the house was around 11 when he heard thumps against his wall. This was around the time the limo driver witnessed the person he believed to be O.J. enter into the house. The prosecution set out to prove that O.J. had been an abusive and jealous husband, determined to keep his wife from ever moving on with her life. To this effect, they called forward 72 witnesses, all suggesting O.J. had motive and opportunity to commit the murders. For example, one of Nicole's sisters was in tears when she told the court that she had witnessed O.J. throw Nicole against the wall. And once at dinner with them, he grabbed Nicole's crotch and declared... Quote, this is where babies come from, and this belongs to me. A friend of O.J. himself testified that he had heard the former football star say that he had dreams about killing Nicole. Meanwhile, the defense, whose work was so masterful, 
press nicknamed them the Dream Team, focused on the fact that O.J. would have been physically incapable of committing the crime, not only because of his alibi, but because after years of professional football, the toll on his body, including extreme arthritis pain, was so severe he wasn't in a condition to pull off a double murder of two strong, healthy adults. This ended up being hard to prove, as there was no... as there was video evidence of O.J. doing rigorous physical activity just before the murders, in which he even did a punching motion, and then said that this part of the workout might be done with the wife. More effectively, however, the defense worked to prove that there was racial bias in the case. They tried to implicate Officer Mark Furman, who had been on the scene in O.J.'s house to look for evidence where he supposedly found a bloody glove. Furman lied about using the N-word while on the stand and was called out for it. He had, in fact, said it many times, and it was all on tape. The glove itself was also put into question, and when O.J. tried it on, it was too small for his hands, which the defense claimed was further proof that evidence had been planted. This led to an infamous slogan that followed the rest of the trial. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. After the trial, experts declared this point was likely moot. The blood may have shrunk the gloves, and they also uncovered photo evidence of O.J. wearing similar ill-fitting gloves. One of the most controversial pieces of evidence at the trial were the blood samples. At first, it seemed like the incredibly unique blood sample from the crime scene almost certainly implicated O.J. Only one out of 170 million sources of blood could fit the profile, and O.J. was one of them. A second sample of what they believed to be Nicole's blood found on one of O.J.'s socks matched with odds of 1 out of 6.8 billion, indicating it was almost certainly hers. However, during cross-examination, the defense called their own witness to support the theory that the blood samples had been contaminated or tampered with by dirty cops, including soft-spoken Henry Lee, highly credentialed forensic expert with whom the jury seemed to resonate deeply. He said very simply at the prosecution DNA test, something's wrong. The defense thought to humanize O.J. as much as possible, so his persecution may be blamed as a symptom of being a black man in America. By the end of the trial, which lasted over 133 days, it brought 150 witnesses to the stand and cost as much as $15 million to try and sequestered the emotionally strained jury for most of that year. Many had begun to criticize the judge for letting the trial go on so long and get so out of hand. Then, on October 3, 1995, in a televised L.A. courtroom, the clerk finally read the verdict. Quote, We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder, At the time, the trial was seen as a major win for the black community, which historically rarely saw legal outcomes in their favor within the racist American criminal justice system. Despite his win after the trial, O.J. was more or less booted from his celebrity circles. He lost TV deals worth millions, and his talent agency of 20 years dropped him. Polls at the time said that the majority of Americans did not agree with the court's decision. However, this too stood on racial lines and was seen to represent white rage over the outcome. He did, however, regain custody of his two children with Nicole, and within a few years, they moved to Miami.
1996, a new civil trial had begun, this time in the district of Santa Monica. As after the state had finished their proceedings, the victim's family sued for wrongful death. The next trial was much quicker and less public. Within four months, O.J. was found responsible for the deaths of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman, and their families were awarded $33.5 million in damages. Notably, they say that one of the deciding factors in the second case included O.J. finally being forced to take the stand, during which he gave very sloppy testimony with a lot of unexplainable details. In the mid-2000s, O.J. stepped into the scene once again. This team, this time, seemingly playing into his reputation. In 2006, an imprint of HarperCollins decided to publish a book O.J. had written called If I Did It. In the book, which was not necessarily a confession, had but billed as a hypothetical case scenario, O.J. describes a confront- confrontation between himself, Nicole, and Ron on the night of the murder, saying, Something went horribly wrong, and I know what happened but I can't tell you exactly how. The whole front of me was covered in blood, but it didn't compute. Obviously, the families and many others were outraged by the audacity of this gruesome, speculative circus of a publication, and eventually HarperCollins recalled the book. However, in September of 2007, it was brought back into circulation with a new publisher, now called If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer. That same year, O.J., who seemingly had grown confident in his ability to be caught, would be, finally be brought down by his ego. With the help of five men he enlisted, he attempted to steal back his own memorabilia in a gunpoint assault and rob- robbery of dealers staying in a Las Vegas hotel. He said he believed the items were rightfully his. Ultimately, he was convicted of robbery, assault with a deadly weapon, and kidnapping sentenced between 9 and 33 years in jail. 2017, he was freed on parole while after serving the minimum sentence. And to this day, most Americans still ask the same question that was on everyone's lips in 1994. Did O.J. do it? for today's episode of the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Let us know your thoughts on the case. Send us a tweet at True Crime NS or on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps. Or you can find us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Let us know, do you think O.J. Simpson did it? Or was he set up? It's one of life's mysteries that cases that really remains Somewhat unsolved. Because if OJ didn't do it, who did? Let us know your thoughts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Follow us on Twitter at True Crime NS. Like us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps. Send us a voice message at anchor.fm slash true crime never sleeps slash message. Tune in next week for an all new episode.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.